0: Uh, My name is Joe Mueller. I'm one of the the pastors, one of the elders here uh, at Remedy. And uh, thank you for being here this morning. Um, Today, as as you saw from the the video, we are going to be in the book of Haggai. I mean, uh, it's Haggai. Um, But that was was a fun way to say it. Um, So, uh, if you could turn your Bibles... um, It's, it's, uh, what, it's in the book of the 12, so that's the 12 really small-ish books uh, right before the end of the Old Testament. It's really only three pages long, so if you, at least in my Bible, so if you look in your table of contents, it may be the fastest and easiest way to do it, uh, unless you have it on your phone, then you can just get to it real, real fast. Um, but so we're actually today going to be picking up right where FUD left off uh, at, after his sermon uh, going through verses 1 through 11 in, in Haggai. Um, but it, so I, I'm, I'm going to read sort of a sizable chunk because it's all going to be important for the sermon today. And so if you would stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word, uh, I, will, I will read it for us. Uh, beginning in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified," says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, "'I am with you,' declares the Lord." And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. You may be seated, and let's pray. So God, we, we come to you as weak and frail creatures who are in desperate need of what you supply. Today, become weary from this world uh, that seeks to compete for our passions and seeks to drive us away from you and seeks to lock us in this never-ending struggle for things that simply cannot satisfy us. And Lord, we we fight and we struggle and we get so tired. And so Lord, we pray and we ask that today would be a day where you revive us. That your word would bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. And that we would feast upon our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that his nourishment would fill our bellies. And that his knowledge would fill our minds. And that his life would become our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, um, my text actually that I was uh, going to be preaching today was going to be uh, 1-12 all the way through 2-9. But I was unable to get past these first uh, three verses, four verses... Uh, in a reasonable amount of time. So uh, we are stuck looking at these three verses. And hopefully stuck is not the right word. Hopefully we are uh, immersed and embraced by the soft glow of the text. No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, but, but hopefully we find some profitable and fruitful um, stuff that the Lord would, would give us. Uh, today, and, and the main point, the main thing that I want us all to see, is that this is a living example. This is proof of what it means to live by faith. In verses twelve through 15, we have an example of how the people of Israel responded to God in faith. And so in order for us to, to see what's going on here, we do have to have a firm grasp and understanding of what happened in the preceding 11 verses, and in 1 through 11, and what Fudd talked about last week. And so once we do that, once we have that firm foundation and knowledge, uh, it's, it'll be much akin to uh, the, the story of Christmas Carol. Did anybody know the opening line from the Christmas Carol? Marley was dead to begin with, right? That is fundamental to the storyline because a ghost appears, the ghost of Marley, and if he's not dead, it doesn't matter that he's appearing, right? Because he's dead, right? That may have gone... That's what I feel like just happened right there. Um, So, but anyway, it's fundamental to the story, to the drama of Scripture, it is pivotal, what happened in verses 1 through 11. So we're going to start there. But there's going to be sort of a, a form to the sermon today. Each of our main points is going to be ripped from the New Testament. I'm just going in and I'm ripping it, and then we're, we're plopping it in here. And our first point is Romans 11.22. So Romans 11.22. And our first point is, Behold the kindness and severity of God. So first up is this severity of God. And we're going to see God's severity, his harshness, his punishment of evil by examining what's going on in verses 1 through 11. So if you are here last week, this will be complete review for you. If you weren't, this will catch you up to what we uh, are looking at today. So in 1 through 11, we have a remnant that had returned from exile and in 1 through 11 they were rebuked by the lord through the mouth of the prophet prophet haggai the remnant had been more concerned about worldly things about their panelled palaces and their agricultural activities and their domestic duties they had been more concerned about the world than with loving their lord yahweh who sits enthroned forever The people of God had neglected the worship of God after the pattern of God. And as we all know, the pattern of worship is incredibly important to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Egypt, had given them this pattern of worship and entrusted it to their fathers. Temple worship had set Israel apart as the people of God from the rest of the world. It testified... To the world, to the nations, that there was a God in Israel. And it promised that God would be among Israel and the world as their God. It was a visible representation of God's presence on earth. And it was also a promise. But upon return from exile, did the people rebuild the temple? The answer is no, they did not and this temple that pointed to the passion of the coming messiah was not restored and lay in disrepair just as though the people had never returned the people had failed to reestablish the worship of god as john 4:24 says in spirit and truth another way to describe this is to use the words of matthew 6:33 the people had failed to seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness And in their efforts to add unto themselves, they left the life they had been commanded to live. They neglected the pattern of worship. And this actually resulted in the opposite of the promise contained in Matthew 6.33. That if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. And instead of adding, the Lord brought the evil of punishment upon them. And we see that it was the Lord who did this in one nine and one eleven. Reading one nine it says, You looked for much, and behold it came to little. When you brought it in, when you brought it home, I blew it away. And then one eleven, and I have called, I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. No, the biblical way of talking about what the Lord had done is that the Lord had brought about a curse on his people. And that sounds weird to us today, right? We, we associate curses with witches. Um, but that's not the way of the Bible. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And Galatians 3.10 is just, it's uh, channeling uh, Deuteronomy 27.26, where it says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. What a curse is, is it's a, a stipulation of a covenant that says, if you obey, you get Good things, right? That's the blessings of the covenant. But if you disobey the covenant, you get the negative stipulations of the covenant. Bad things are going to happen. The covenant God is going to inflict judgment upon you. And so in the context of Haggai, the curse we are seeing is a covenantal curse. It's an old covenant curse. It is a curse akin to what um, uh, Moses describes in Deuteronomy 28, which comes right after the curse that we read in Deuteronomy 27:26. In 28, God lays out for those covenant blessings that the people will embrace and receive if they obey, if they keep covenant with Yahweh. But then in the second half of 28, He lays out all the curses that will fall upon the people if they break covenant. And these curses are very much alike. The way that they're described in Deuteronomy 28 uh, makes one think of the things that uh, the people uh, during the time of Haggai were uh, experiencing. Their fields and their lands and their produce uh, was not as it should have been. And so the people disobeyed the Lord and the Lord punished the people. And so here we behold the severity of God. He is a just God. He is a God who will curse people who break his law. But where in this text is is the kindness of God? So we behold the severity and kindness of God. What, What makes God kind in what he is doing here? And again, covenant is the key. Because these covenant curses are are announced to somebody, or they're announced to the people by a covenant messenger, Haggai, the prophet. A prophet of the Lord is someone who speaks to the people the words of the Lord. He is the mouthpiece of God. He delivers the message that God is saying and speaking. We see this from Deuteronomy eighteen seventeen, where it says, I will raise up for them a prophet... Like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so, in this office of prophet, Haggai is a mouthpiece of the Lord. As prophet, Haggai is the servant of the Lord. As prophet, Haggai is the messenger, the ambassador, the litigator, the lawyer of the Lord. And he is bringing a case against the people in a public way so that they can hear what God has against them. And so as such, prophets are not private persons. They're not sitting in an ivory tower waiting for the word of God to strike their brains so that they can scribble it on a tablet and hope people hear it. No, they are public people. They are looking for ways to proclaim this message to as many people as will hear. And so when Haggai went before Zerubbabel and Joshua in 1-1, he probably did so within the hearing of the people, or at least a representative body of the people. Think of a council of elders, a 70-year-old man walking before all these young, powerful, rich people. Or uh, maybe he, he went to this big public rally at, at the Temple Mount and he, he climbs the steps and stands before the people, frail as a 70 year old man, and proclaims to them the word of the Lord. Sending Haggai to the people is God's act of mercy, his act of kindness. He didn't need to send any messenger. He didn't need to tell them that they were breaking his law. He didn't have to reveal to them their present pain was a result of a covenantal curse. He didn't need to do it, but he did. He did tell the people of their law breaking, and his curse was upon them. He did send a messenger to warn them. And that warning, that beckoning to repent... That confronting with the reality of your actions is an incredible kindness. We we know this to be true. If we know a doctor, this is a very common example, right? A doctor knows that you are sick and that he has a cure for your illness. He is being unkind if he doesn't tell you. He is being wicked, in fact, if he doesn't let you know that there's a way to be saved. And so in this way, just like the doctor who, who sees the illness and who tells you about it, so too Haggai is a representation of God's kindness to his people. He is unwilling for them to continue in their sins. God desires that they would be saved. God desires that they're struggling and toiling and wasting their efforts would end. God desires that the hunger of fathers and mothers and children would be no more, and that the sin that is causing it would be driven from the land. And in his kindness, in his love for his people, God sent Haggai, he sent a messenger. And for us, we can behold the kindness and severity of God. Because we see this sort of thing happening today all the time. We, God's people, are sent as messengers to the world. We are sent as ambassadors to carry the banner of this message of good news of the gospel. We come in and we, and we, we declare that people are under a curse. That their sin is killing them. That is murdering them as they sit and and watch TV and live their lives. It is ending them where they lay. And we are the messengers who are messengers of great kindness. And we go to them and we share with them the truth. We also see this in, in, in our personal relationships. We may see a brother or a sister or a friend Engaged in an activity that we know to be harmful, that we know to be hurtful, that we know will end up destroying them. Whether it's uh, an addiction or a, a relationship craziness that they're a part of, or the way that they treat people at work, or any sort of really big things to really small things. We, we, we uh, exude kindness and love and compassion when we bring these things to them. Granted, we, we do it in a way that's honoring and, and sees the image of Christ in them um, and seeks to restore them, but we also confront them with the truth and help them see what's real, what is real. And we are the kindness of, of Haggai to them. And so three, three quick points uh, of application here as, as, we, as we see the severity of God in applying the curses of the Old Covenant to the people of the Old Covenant who broke the Old Covenant, and the kindness of God in calling these people back to obedience. The first point is this, and this, I want this to be crystal clear, because I think this can be an area of confusion that we can get into, is that if you are in Christ and bad things are happening to you, you are not under a curse. You are not cursed of God. Jesus became a curse for us. And Jesus climbed up upon a cross. And Jesus' flesh paid the penalty for all the curse the people in Christ would have to suffer. And would have to, to feel because of our law breaking. All of that is paid for in full in Christ. And so if you are having bad things happen to you, know that you are not under a curse of God. God is for you in every way. And he will turn even this bad thing, even this thing that crushes you, he will turn this thing for your good. Because he loves you. And he is for you. And he is not against you. And you are not cursed. Christ is for you. Who can be against you? The answer is no one. Christ is for you. The second thing, I want you to consider again, because Fudd talked about this last week. If the Lord has sent anyone like Haggai to you, to announce to you what may seem like some bad news, like maybe they got it totally wrong, but actually is good news, because they're warning you of something that you are doing. They're calling you to stop sinning. They're calling you to repent and to walk a newness of life. And if God has been so kind as to send you someone like that, listen to the Lord and experience it as kindness. Turn and believe. And then the, the third thing is, 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 is there anyone who, you, who the Lord is laying upon your heart to go talk to? Is there anyone who you see something not right in their life? And it may seem like you have to announce bad news to them. And you're you're worried about that. You're concerned about that. Um, I would just encourage you that you are doing them a kindness. You are showing them love. You are being like Jesus to them. And there is no greater experience in this world than to act like Jesus. There is nothing better than to be like him. In the way that we live our lives, so behold the severity and kindness of God. the The second um, point today is we find from Mark one fifteen. Mark one fifteen, and it is repent and believe. Mark. Uh, one starting in one fourteen, it says, "Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God." So this is the very first message that Jesus is proclaiming in summary form. This is he didn't just walk around um, Galilee saying these what ten words or whatever, but uh, this is how it's recorded to us in Mark. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. So, so let's turn back to, to Haggai. And we're jumping to verse 12. So we've, we've had our A Christmas Carol moment, right? We know what we need to know for this story to make sense. God is cursing his people and he sent his messenger to, to them. And there is content. There, is, there are uh, propositions. There are things that that are true, that they need to believe or understand about what was said in the past. Let's see how they respond to those propositions in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the priest, with all the remnant of the people, see, all the remnant of the people are there, they heard, they understood what Haggai was saying in his address. All the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Now, I want to hone in on two phrases in, in that verse obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, uh, and the people feared the Lord. Obeyed and feared. And both of these dot, uh, ideas, excuse me, are contained in the phrase that we just looked at from Mark. 1 uh, 15 of repenting and believing obeying the voice of the lord their god is very much like repentance uh, repentance right is is recognizing that we're going the wrong way and then uh to to do a vbs song as uh, so i did a 180 if anybody remembers that from many 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 years ago um no okay you do a 180 that's how you that's how you repent Is you you're going one way and then you 180 degree turn the other way. 180, yeah? BBS. Um, yup. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so repenting and obeying are corollaries. They mean the same thing. Um, if someone is telling you to obey the law of God, what they're really telling you to do is repent of not obeying and then obeying. Uh, so there are two uh, elements to obedience. It's not only not doing what you're not supposed to do, it's actually doing what you are supposed to do. So repent and obey It uh, seems pretty clear, right? You need to stop doing the wrong and do the right. In this case, the people need to stop not building the temple and stop not considering their ways, and they need to consider their ways and build the temple. What's, what I think is is pretty important in this text is that uh, there's not much of a time gap between verse 11 and verse 12. There's no date that gets inserted here in the narrative. There's nothing that would seem to indicate that there's a significant period of time separating these two sentences. And so, we have to to wonder how in such a short period of time were the people in Joshua and uh, Zerubbabel able to obey God. Was the temple any more built from the beginning of Haggai's oration to the end? I mean, the answer is no. It's not like he started talking and then, like, I don't know, um, minions, they just all start building the temple and then he's done and boom. Right? I built the temple. That's not what happened. The temple is still in disrepair. The temple is still torn down. The pattern Of worship has not been restored. So, how did the people obey the voice of the Lord their God? How? Well, Haggai commanded the people twice to consider their ways. He commanded them twice to think about the way that they were living their lives. And I think that that's how the people obeyed. And that as they considered, their ways, something else happened. The Spirit of God convicted them of their sins, and the people looked at the law of God and saw themselves in light of that holy and perfect rule, and they found themselves lacking. They did not measure up, and the words of the prophet began to make sense, and they had this oh yeah moment where they were like, oh yeah, you're right. Haggai. You're right. And then they saw God as the sovereign Lord of the covenant. They believed that God punishes evildoers. They believed that fact, that proposition that is contained within Haggai's oracle. They believed that God was executing the terms of the covenant, that they were They weren't even a twinkle in their great-great-great-great-grandparents' eyes when that covenant was cut with God at Sinai. They believed that God was doing that and that he was punishing their waywardness and rebellion with the curses of the covenant to call them back to him. They believed that their present calamity was a result of this unfaithfulness and they came to an understanding of reality that was truer than the version that they previously saw. Something changed in their mind and in their thinking about what really was. The people feared the Lord. Or to use the words of Mark 115, the people believed. There were messages, there was information that Haggai gave to them that they latched onto and grasped as their own, and it made an impact on the way that they felt, on the way that they thought, and on what they were going to go do from that moment. So I think the Heidelberg Catechism uh, summarizes the biblical teaching on what it means to believe or fear the Lord very, very well. I I love this answer to the question 21 of the Catechism. The, The question is, what is true faith? And The Catechism answers this way. It says, True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. So it's not just a belief that what God says is true. It is also a wholehearted trust. It's a trust in that knowledge which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me. But to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. And these are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. And so here we have another biblical word for what is going on in this repent and believe. This uh, obey the voice of the Lord their God and fear the Lord their God. And that is the word faith. Faith encompasses both the idea of obeying and of repenting, and of believing, and of fearing the Lord. Consider uh, for a second Hebrews 11.8. Hebrews 11.8. This is talking about Abraham. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed. So there's a pretty clear connection here between faith and obedience. And he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an, as an inheritance. So he's doing something. He is following where God's leading, believing a promise that God has laid before him. He has said, Abraham, this land will be yours and your descendants. Continuing on, he says, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. So he believed that this land was his own, even though many people lived there. Many, even though he lived as a sojourner in that land. He lived as in a foreign land, so as a sojourner. He lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And the reason he did that, the reason why we find in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now that is something that Abraham stuck his life upon, and the life of his children. In the life of his children's 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 children. They get really small. All these children having children. That's a Flight of the Concords joke. I just stole it. Um, and then you have in verse 11 by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. So faith gives one power to overcome natural barriers. Her womb, it says, was as good as dead. Because she was 80 years old. And what type of 80 year old woman has a baby? It just doesn't happen. The same way it doesn't happen that a virgin has a baby. Right? But Jesus, born of a virgin. God does miraculous things through faith. So faith, repent and believe, obey the voice of the Lord, and fear the Lord. That was our second point. Repent and believe. Now our third point is going to come to us from Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Uh, Philippians 12 through 13 reads, Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, again we have this obedience, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So our point here is work, dot dot dot, for it is God who works. Work, dot dot dot, for it is God who works. That's from Philippians two thirteen, or two twelve through thirteen. But before we, we jump into that point, I don't want us to miss something that happens in, in Haggai 1.13. So we have this little, itty-bitty, tiny, minuscule act of faith by the people in Joshua and Zerubbabel. They simply consider their ways. They listen to the voice of the prophet, and they consider their ways. And then this happens. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And what a beautiful and succinct way of describing God's presence and the Lord's favor with his people. It it should remind you of the great promise that Jesus gives to us in the Great Commission, where he says in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. The God who dwells with his people and fills the earth with his glory is the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is this Jesus? Jesus is a very present help in time of need. He is the God of all comfort. He is the Prince of all peace. He is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick or crush a bruised reed or turn away from the sick or the lame or the outcast. His food puts all feasts to shame. His song will be sung forever. His house shall have no end, and the scepter of his might shall ever be in his hand. He smashes his enemies with his rod of iron, and swords of flaming fire flow forth from his presence, scattering the darkness. His light is eternal. His love is inexplicable. His glory is unapproachable. He is the savior of the world. He is the shepherd of his sheep. He is God." And he is a God, this Jesus is a God who works for his people. We we see this in, in verse 14 of Haggai chapter 1. We see this in this simple phrase, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. The Lord stirred up. It's used in many different ways. Uh, sometimes it's used as a, as a way for a guy to get going with his spear. Right There's this uh, passage about this guy who killed a bunch of guys with his spear. and it, It's that same sort of idea that he stirred up his spear to kill all these people. Um, but most often, most often this phrase is associated with the providence of God. And the providence of God working out events in history after the manner of his will. It's God orchestrating the events of history to do what he wants to have done. And so, uh, we just have time for one example. It's going to be in First Chronicles 5.25. twenty-five. First Chronicles 5.25. But they, meaning the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, broke faith with the God of their fathers and whored after the gods of the peoples of the land, whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile. So in the first half of verse 14, God is providentially working in the remnant to do his will of building the temple once again. And the same is true for us, right? God is providentially working in us. God is at work in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. So in the first half of of the verse, God through his providence is accomplishing his will that he has set to do. But in the second half of the verse, we have the people actually doing the work of building the house, building the temple. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, ending verse 14, their God On the 24th day of the month, on the 6th month, on the 2nd year of Darius the king. And so we are to work. We are to do things. But we are to do so in such a way that we understand, that we know, that we delight in. That we have confidence that it will be accomplished. Because we know that it's not up to us. We know that we are not ultimately going to be the ones who this depends upon. God is going to work in us. And he is going to work out our salvation. So, uh, we're into the conclusion here. And I just want us to draw out two two semi-quick applications or inferences or beliefs from all that work that we've done so far. So so we've seen what it's like to live in faith. We see that it's a response Faith is a response to a message from God. Faith is believing that what's in that message is one, true, two, affects us, and three, means more than any other message we think we could be believing that seems contrary to it. Faith is is understanding and accepting those truths and then living in light of them. And finally, it's an acknowledgement that God is at work in us, But that also we have a role to play. And that that is not insignificant. So what are those two quick concluding points that I wanted to make? The first is another Bible verse. It's Hebrews 13.8. And what Hebrews 13.8 says is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. All the points we covered... That we saw in our text. They are ripped from the New Testament. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Romans 11.22. Repent and believe. That's Mark 1.15. And work. For it is God who works. That's Philippians 2. I did that very much on purpose. I was very purposeful in doing that. um, Because... The people of the Old Testament and the people of the New Testament and we today are very much the same types of people. We all need the same things. We all have the same struggles. And God's message to us is the same. And as we explore the ways God has dealt with his people in the past, we should read the Old Testament in light of the New. When we're reading the Old Testament, we should always be pulling the Old Testament Or New Testament down into the Old. The New Testament explains a ton of the Old Testament. And we can't understand the Old Testament without the New. But the same is true as well. Right? We cannot understand the New Testament without also understanding what's going on in the Old. And so there's this great thing called the Canon of Scripture. It is God's only authorized account of his self-revelation. It is gloriously wonderful that we have access to it like we do. It is completely truthful. It is entirely inerrant. It is wonderfully true. And you can bank your life upon its contents. And so I implore you to spend time in this book. Explore its beauty. Find Christ in every page. Pour your mind and your heart and your soul into these pages and search and search for Christ in them because he will reveal himself to you in them. And if you need help in any way with handling the scriptures, reach out to Jack or to Fudd or to myself and we will happily spend time helping you taste and see that the Lord is good from his word. The the final thing is that living by faith is hard. It's hard. When Jesus beckons us to come, he calls us to a life of repentance and belief, of obeying the voice of the Lord and fearing the Lord. Jesus likened this life to one of constant death, always dying. He said, uh, "If anyone would come after me," in Luke nine twenty three, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." Jesus means many things by this statement. But today I want us to consider just one of them. Where do you need the truth of God? And where do you need who he is as a person? And where do you need the justice of his law to shake you free from the sin that might so easily entangle you? I'll use an example to explain what I mean. In scripture we are commanded to forgive. Matthew 6 uh, 14 through 15 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus even uses a parable of the unforgiving steward or servant to drive this point home. So the, the steward is forgiven $10 million. $10 million he's forgiven. And then he goes and he finds somebody who owed him 10000 And he beats him and beats him and beats him and throws him in jail. He says, I almost went to jail because of you. And then the master who forgave the 10 million gets really, really, really mad with this unforgiving servant. And this this parable that Jesus uses is, is to teach the people of God that they are to forgive and to forgive radically. But forgiveness can be really hard. The hurt we've done, the the hurt that's been done to us can go very deep. It can crush our souls with grief. And the wrongs we've suffered can change the trajectory of our lives and the lives of our children and the lives of our children's children. The wrongs that men do seem to know no bounds. But the truth of the hurt cannot change the truth of God's word. That's the type that's the type of faith God is calling us to. And Jesus, the Savior of the world, he will look out across the courtyard at us and say to, the, say to us, if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. He will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Church, who are we going to believe in those moments when unforgiveness and bitterness want to rule our lives? Who are we going to believe? Who are we going to believe when a little lie could seem to save us from hassle or harm? Who are we going to believe when the world approves of one thing and God has condemned the same? Who will we believe in the dark of night When no one is around to see what we do, the Lord of hosts were the temptations of loneliness. Psalm 27, 12 through 14 helps in the midst of these questions. It says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me. People who would slip in a lie that would say, This is truer than what God has said. This is more beautiful than what God has said. This is more valuable than what God has said. But that lie is the breath of violence. It says they breathe out violence. That lie will destroy you. Verse 13. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe Verse 14 is our encouragement. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Jesus, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the amazing mercy that you have shown us on the cross. It is the perfect life that you lived that lets us stand before you and opens your ears to our prayers. It is the, the death that you did not deserve in your dying that frees us from the curse that belongs to us by right and by birth and by deed. But you have freed us. You have made us whole. You have redeemed us. You have snatched us from the pit. What you have done on the cross, you have done for us. And so, Lord, we lay a hold of your feet. We come to you and we ask you to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask you to send your spirit upon us and to renew our minds after the pattern after which we were created, which is you. You are the pattern after which we were created. You are the temple of which we are members Your flesh is our flesh. Your life is our life. We are hidden with Christ in God. And because you are for us, no one can be against us. Because he who did not uh, keep his own son away from us has given him freely to us. No one will be able to snatch us from your hand. We are your sheep. You are our shepherd. We hear your voice. But God, we admit that we are so weak and we need so much of you. We are so empty and we ask you to fill us. We are so frail and we ask you to be our strength. We are so hungry and we ask you to fill us with your food. And we are so thirsty. And we ask you to fill us with your drink. We are unable to do these things on our own. We need you every moment of every day. And God, we just want to lift our cup of salvation. We want to raise it to you and say, Look what God has done. I have been well acquainted with my darkness, and look, there's light. I've been well acquainted with my evil, and look, there are good deeds that go before me that I do because of Christ in me, my hope of glory. We want to see you as we live your life here on this earth. We want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings as we participate in extending the good news Of what you have done over the face of this earth. So that one day. Sin will be no more. This world will burn up with fire. And forever we will be with you. We will have new flesh. We will have resurrected life. And for all of eternity. We will consider your ways. We will know your path. We will marvel at your creation and your plan and your providence. We will delight in your goodness to us. We will exalt in your holiness and your wisdom. We will praise you without ceasing and, and sing your praises without end. We will be forever yours and there will be nothing separating us from your love that promise is ours now and today. We can believe it and we can know it and we can taste it that nothing separates us from your love. And so be with us today as we go from here and as we live this week. Make us yours.